Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, they're always very special, Sunday morning mailbag editions. They are special for a lot of reasons, but mostly because I'm here with this man, Andrew Page. How are you, mate? I'm very good. Very good. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. You are the founder and managing director of strawman.com, which is a... Um, a uh, um, what is oh, it again? you almost had it. Yeah, I thought you oh. might have got it. It's a, it's a private online investment club. <laughs> oh, it is too. Of course it is. Um, I, am, of course, am Scott Phillips working for The Motley Fool. And we are here to answer some of your questions. Now, Patrick hit me up during the week and very politely, very kindly said, uh, um, mate, you've, you've missed my question. And we don't get to every single question all the time. Some are repeats, some are overlaps. So we don't get to every specific individual one. But Patrick had a question. I thought it was a good one. So, Andrew, I'm going to kick off with this one. And it says, hi, Scott and Andrew. A question for the podcast about the NASDAQ 100 ETF, please. Now, I'm pretty sure you and I both own it for full disclosure as we start. I know mm-hmm. Andrew will say one is clutching at straws when deciding which diversified ETF to choose. Uh, he says in brackets, jokes, he's actually awesome. I didn't know you had an Uncle Patrick, Andrew, but there you go. <laughs> Thanks, but I do mate. wonder whether the NDQ ETF or the NASDAQ 100 ETF is a sensible diversified approach compared to, say, the S&P 500 or the MSCI Global Index. The reason? It's 70% in technology. And so, in brackets, and I think you've said this, close brackets, you're making a bet on tech. But if in, I'm investing for 10 plus years, I question whether this is sensible compared to the more diversified US 500 company or a global ETF. For disclosure, I invest in the ETF too, but I have been questioning the nature of diversification and whether we, myself included, have a slight bias and if even NDQ is tending toward a thematic ETF. Yes, the composition will come and go, but if there's all, if that's also the case, why not just go with the S&P 500? Thanks for all your thoughts. I really appreciate the way you guys think through business issues and investing rather than the answers in themselves. That's almost a backhanded compliment, I think. Cheers from Patrick. <laughs> um, I'm glad you appreciate the thought process, whether or not you appreciate the answers. Maybe that's an open question, Patrick. It's a good question, mate. You and I both own the NASDAQ ETF. We both talked about it. We both like it. But it's a fair question, isn't it? This is all tech. This is kind of a bit thematic, and I've railed against thematic ETFs, at least as I, you know, without doing deep research into them. Is he right? Are we kind of taking a bit of a uh, shortcut here, and maybe we shouldn't be, given the long-term nature of our investing approaches? There, there is a spectrum here, so it's not there's it's not black and white. And mm. yeah, you on one end you you have <laughs> go on. Say it depends. Go on. It depends. There we it go. Depends. <laughs> well, you know you've got you've got the like the MSCI World Index, which is literally you know virtually every major company around the world. And then right at the other end, you've got the hyper-specific robotic ETF. We only invest in robot companies, or, you know, yes. something super, super niche. <laughs> or and, leverage, and- leverage gold, you know, something, something ETF, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I think, I think with the beta shares and DQ, you are, you are very diversified and much further to, the, to the, the first part of the spectrum that I spoke to. So what might surprise you is if you actually go to the BetaShares website, which I've just done, mm-hmm. 49% of the sector allocation is into IT. Mm-hmm. 17% is in consumer discretionary. Mm-hmm. 7% is in consumer staples. Almost 7% is in healthcare. There's even 3.4% in industrial. In fact, there's 5% in industrials and utilities combined. Right. So, so it's not all tech. That's why you often hear the, the reporters say the tech heavy Nasdaq. Yeah. It's, it's it's heavy. <laughs> it's tech heavy. Yeah. But even in the top ten, Pepsi, 
Pepsi is like the seventh biggest stock on yeah. on on that. So it's so it is it is not all tech. So I'd, I'd make that point. Yep. I would also make the point that it's just tech is one of these increasingly useless distinctions. <laughs> I think in 1953 it was a really good distinction, yeah. and then over time it's become less and less and less. You point to. Um, today, a company, any major company on any major exchange around the world, which doesn't have a very hefty technology component, even if it's just in how they run their admin and their back office systems. Technology is all pervasive. It's, it's everywhere. So it's, it's becoming a completely, a more and more ambiguous kind of term. Um, but even, even out with all of that aside, I feel as though when I look in my crystal ball, and unfortunately that's all we're doing with investing, you have to make a guess on the future. Um, but when I make my guesses on the future, I feel as though the most exciting, most value creating, most explosive growth potentials are in, in quote unquote technology. Mm, yeah. um, uh, however you define that, whether that's pure IT or whether it's, I don't know, 3D printing or <laughs> yeah. whatever, you know, there's a, there's a very broad, technology is a very broad term. Mm. I feel as though that's where the more exciting opportunities are for me. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm happy to tilt it that way. Mm. And with the beta shares NDQ, I'm able to tilt it that way while still having some utilities and some Pepsi and some, you know, boring old consumer discretionary kind of sort of stocks in all of that. But I've also got the very biggest, most um, strongest balance sheet, most innovative, most disruptive companies in the world there. And despite America and all of its troubles, I mean, it's 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 hard not to be, I think, uh, a little at least a little bit optimistic about where we are headed uh, and how technology is going to play a major role in that. So I'm, I'm happy to have a, a pretty big exposure to it personally. Yeah, I love that, mate. I, I can't add much more. Um, I'm glad you picked up the, the sector stuff because that's that's an important part of it. I mean, Patrick, I, you know, I, I've I've said before when I've talked about this stuff, I'm absolutely talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm not not gonna not gonna pretend I'm not. Right? There is this part of me that says, you know, just broad based, lowest cost index you can find. I think that's a great idea. I think what I why I like the Nasdaq ETF is because I think you're getting all that stuff, but you're getting to choose a an index in and of itself. So rather, I guess what I'm saying is buying a robotics ETF, you're buying a theme specifically. We have in this case a broad-based, low-cost, um, you know, index-based ETF that happens to be the NASDAQ ET100 index, happens to be based on the NASDAQ exchange. And the why, I think, qualitatively, and this, so this is not purely passive. Choosing the NASDAQ ETF is not a purely passive choice. As you say, mate, you can absolutely can and sh- maybe even should if, if that's your approach. Um, <coughs> certainly, I wouldn't. I have no problem with doing that, by the way, the other way around. But if I think about the, the biggest companies in America that aren't on the NASDAQ, you kind of end up with this lumbering you know, General Motors, General Electric type businesses, right? And they, they, were, they were wonderful business in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. If I, if I was to run a qualitative ruler over the US market, then I think it's fair to say that both the quality and the future potential are both higher on the NASDAQ than the S&P. So if I get to choose between them, it's a bit like saying, well, why invest in the S&P 500 rather than the, um, I'm, trying to pick, I'm trying not to offend anybody now, um, uh, rather than the, <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't say a company. I was going to say New Zealand, I thought I'd offend the Kiwis. I was going to say the, the FTSE, I was going to offend, offend the, the, the POMs. You know, but the UK's probably a good one. Why invest in the S&P 500 rather than the UK FTSE index, right? We, they're, they're both broad-based large indices, both broad-based large Western democracies with rule of law. They're very similar. We 
in, we, we kind of pivot towards the US because we say, well, broadly, I think the US has probably got a better. As soon as you do that, now, MSRI world is the purest of the pure because you're literally saying everything in the world, I'll take it all. Thank you. Once you say I'll do the S&P 500 rather than, even if you don't actively decide not to do the FTSE, when you say S&P 500, you are bel- you're buying a, a bias, a preference, a, a choice, which is to say, I think the US is probably a better market than others I could choose. Even if you don't actually ever consider them, that's kind of what you're doing. And it's not the wrong thing to do either, by the way. Uh, but uh, to my mind, the NASDAQ is just a subset of that same choice, which is given everything on the US markets, if I could, with, with a very simple, still very diversified, broadly indexed base, all that kind of stuff, pick one I thought had more potential and higher quality, would I? Yeah, I would. And so that's why I have also got the NASDAQ. Now, I do have a Vanguard um, total US market. I think it's in my Young Blokes um, account we've got for him. So I, 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 I'm not going to strongly say you shouldn't do an S&P 500 or you shouldn't do a global, you shouldn't do uh, a US. I'm just saying, I, I think there's very good reasons to have as part of that mix, both potentially with a bit more money put on those companies. Andrew, you've covered the tech stuff beautifully. I'm not going to do it again other than just to, just to repeat your point, which is tech, I think is a useless um, description. Uh, actually, I went one step further while you were chatting, mate. I downloaded the, the full list of companies Um Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Tesla are all tech companies, but are they really, you know, how, how much do they have in common? Almost nothing, nothing right? Almost nothing. Uh, Alphabet, NVIDIA, PepsiCo, Costco, Next4. Uh, what do they have in common? Uh, large nothing. T-Mobile, Meta Platforms, which is Facebook, Broadcom and Cisco Systems. Are mm. they all tech companies? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Texas Instruments, Amgen, which is a healthcare company, Adobe and Comcast. Uh, same thing Honeywell Qualcomm Netflix I'm not going to keep going you get the idea um, some of those do are in the same category some overlap some will be subject to the same forces but those forces almost become economic rather than even sector right if consumer yeah. spending falls craft's going to get hurt as much as Netflix or maybe not but you know that that, can, that same idea so yeah I, I think tech is it, it's, almost, it's a useless it's useless Dude, to it now Go. Goldman Sachs is a finance company and so is straw man so <laughs> So let's let's talk about them in equal terms. And only one of them has an overpaid managing director and founder, but you can decide who. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Though, like, it's kind of like these, some exactly of these buckets right. are, are really, really kind of useless. And you're exactly um, right. I, I would say this, though. I would yeah. say this. Um, there's no wrong answers. So we've kind of given, we've revealed our yeah. our personal preferences and biases. But yeah. that, I really got to be clear here. There's, that doesn't mean that we're right. You know, yeah. in fact, if history's any guide, maybe we're incredibly wrong and you should do the exact opposite. <laughs> um, but, but, but there's a, the, the thing, I think one of the, there's a lot of things that are always true. And, and yeah. I think you've always got to remember with investing is that there's always a compromise. And if you want to shift with that, that real extreme end of the spectrum with the MSCI Global Index, mm-hmm. you're about as safe as you can possibly be in an equities-exposed yep. asset class. Yep. But that, that, there's no free lunch with that. The, 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 the compromise you take is lower returns. Yeah. You know, more, most yeah. likely. Exactly. Now, exactly. with the NASDAQ, uh, it's still very diversified. It's still very yes. broad-based. It's, it's, I, would, I wouldn't call it risky by any stretch of the imagination on any meaningful time frame. Yeah. But it's riskier and I'll, I personally, I'm happy to take that little bit of extra risk because I feel as though the compromise, I, well, the, the offsetting factor there is I'm going to get a better return. Mm. And I think you actually touched on something really interesting before when you talked about the FTSE because it made me think, oh, yeah, how has the FTSE gone yeah, um, right. over time? It's actually, it's actually uh, where it was in 1999. Wow. You know, the FTSE That's has gone nowhere. Um, and then I look at the components. See if you recognize any of these companies. I don't. Experian, <laughs> Persimmon, 
Associated British Foods, or BAE Systems, I know those, uh, Compass, Schroeder's, Scottish Mortgage Investment, Tesco, I know Tesco. I mean, these, I don't want to, I don't want to have a go at these companies. I don't know, maybe they're incredible investments, but are they of the same kind of character and optionality and global dominance and relevance and mm. then, then some of those other ones that, that we were mentioning? I, I don't know. I probably not. Um, so yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've made our point. I've made our point. There's no wrong answers. Just remember that the, the, the more diversified you get, the lower the return that you should reasonably expect. And at the same time, lower risk as well. Nice. This one's from Ash. He says, hi, Scott. How's it going? I thoroughly enjoy reading all of your posts. I've certainly a lot. I have a question on how to maximize income or profit in I'm a I'm good, by market. the way, Ash. I'm good, by the way. I think, yeah, thanks for asking. Don't, yeah, don't care. Uh, he's talking to me, Andrew. He's talking to me. <laughs> uh, you used to be quiet. I got that. Yeah. <laughs> I recently started investing into shares, ETFs, and a few companies. However, I've not been investing for about six months after I noticed the market trending downwards. I've been fortunate enough to accumulate a decent amount of funds in the last six months. My question, where do successful investors invest during bear markets or in times like we're facing in the moment? I tend to hold on to my investments for the long term and want the dividends to supplement my retirement in 20 to 30 years time. How could I find out how successful investors operate during bear markets or when the markets are trending downwards? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go first. Um, It's... Oh, I really get the question. I really get the question. Um, but I, I want to I clarify a bit of language. I was talking about on Friday, the podcast, like some pet peeves, like the world's smallest peeves, but, but peeves nonetheless. And one of, his, one of them is, is the phrase, the market is trending down. And it's a slight, maybe it's a semantic issue here, but mm-hmm. the correct phrasing is the market has trended down. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? Like yep, yep, tomorrow yep. we could jump 20% and we yep. could just go to the moon from here. I'm not you have to know it's going, going to happen. continue to use the active tense. Yes. If you're yep. using the active tense, you're, you're, you're implicitly saying that it will continue to go. And this is where too many of the, the technical analysts I feel go wrong is they just, we, we do it with everything. We just extrapolate. Yeah. And, and, and we say the market's trending down. And then so then the, the logical and almost what feels like the rational response is therefore to go, I will wait for it to start trending up. Mm. I, you know, um, not that it has trended up, that it will, mm. it is trending mm. up, mm. then I will, I will buy then. Now, the trouble is, is that none of these things are apparent without a bit of distance. So it's sort of like they're, they're apparent after the fact. Mm. Mm. And even yeah. then, <laughs> that guarantee, doesn't guarantee where it's going to go from there. Yep. Yep. So actually, the market has had a pretty good run in recent couple of weeks. Despite mm-hmm. all what the Fed's done and the rest of it, it's actually, it's actually come away from the low. Certainly, at least some of the stocks I've been tracking, it's, it's had a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. But I also know from history, if you want to use history as a guide, which is usually a pretty good one, yes. is that the strongest bull market, the strongest short-term rallies often happen in secular bear markets. Some of the biggest one-day pops tend to happen in bear markets as well. It's mm-hmm. why they're, they're often referred to as sucker rallies because you have this big sell-off and then things sort of bounce. Maybe there's short sellers covering their positions or maybe they're relief rallies and there's all these terms. But 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 it's kind of all irrelevant and it's noise and we actually don't know what it means until, you know, years mm-hmm. later and we've got a bit of distance and we can then sort of speak on it or opine on it with any sort of clarity and, and, and factual basis. Mm-hmm. So so I just want to make that point. Um, the, the other one is, is what do smart investors do? Well, the smart investors, I would argue, don't pay any attention to what the market is doing. <laughs> the smart investors are looking at companies and, mm-hmm. and they're saying, at what point is this attractively priced relative to my 
considered view on its future prospects? Mm. That's a much harder question. Yeah. And within any horrible bear market, and maybe it's a secular bear market that lasts 10 years, I'm on the record as saying, I, you know, my thumb suck, and it is nothing other than that, is for the next 10 years, we will probably be on below average kind of returns. There's just mm. a few factors at play. That could be completely wrong. But I also know within that, within the 2,000-odd companies on the ASX, I have no doubt that there will be dozens that absolutely shoot the lights out. Absolutely no doubt in my mind, because that's always the case. Uh, and there'll be some that go to zero, right? So it's sort of, what's, what, what, what does it matter what the market is doing? Well, I guess if you're making a pure ETF-based bet on the market, then there's, there's that. Mm. But if you're a, an active stock picker, and then, it, then the answer is frustratingly, again, it depends on what, what companies. And, and, and don't, just don't, is, uh, do I like this business? Yes or no? Do I want to be an owner in this business? Yes or no? What price does becoming an owner in this business compensate me for the risks that I face by being an owner in this business? Is the market currently giving me an opportunity to be an owner in this business given all that I just said? If the answer is yes, then you should buy. Even if it goes down another 20%, 30% after that, and, and many times it will. And I've, I've said the point before, not to make myself sound clever, but in fact, quite the opposite. The best <laughs> investments I've ever made have all done that. I've bought yeah. them and they've just plummeted after I've bought them. They've sat there for six, 12 months longer. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, five years later, I look back and it's like, wow, I compounded <laughs> at 16% per year. Yeah. I, I seem yeah. really smart. It's like, no, I timed it terribly. Mm-hmm. I sat there on my hands for, for yonks, just suffering and sleepless nights. But that's, that's kind of the... the, the, mm-hmm. the the story and that's why those gains are there for those that have the fortitude and the patience to sort of realize all of that kind of stuff the objectivity to sort of look through all the noise of the market and it's a long rambling answer i know but it's the best answer that i that i can give is 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 don't play the game that the market wants you to play don't fall into the narrative that you're going to be reading in the, in the paper and all this kind <laughs> of nonsense it's, it's yeah. a pure yeah. optional participatory endeavor that you can or cannot interact with if you choose to and and every day the market's going to give you an opportunity. And most days you should just say, no, thanks. But every now and again, you'll see something. It's just like, that seems like a good deal and I'll do it. And you won't actually know if it was a good deal or not until several, <laughs> exactly. several years later. Exactly. Um, but that's, exactly. Uh, if it was easy, um, we'd all do it. And if we were all doing it and it was easy, there wouldn't be outsized returns. So it, it's, that, it's that reality, brutal reality that we all have to make peace with. Love it. Um, I'm just going to add that Ash's question implies, you know, there's, there's the whole, the old, the, old tra- the best trading strategy to try and sell people. I, I, I'm saying sell people not to actually follow. The best one to sell people is we make money in all markets. And so I get that's why Ash is asking the question, right? Your, your, your answer is absolutely spot on, Andrew. But the, the, just to, to, to drill down on the specific question was like, how can I make money in a down market? Well, if you knew it was going to keep going and if you knew all the things that Andrew was talked about and you could therefore predict with certainty, then of course there are things you could do. You could short shares. You short could, the market. Yeah. yeah, you could do whatever you yeah. wanted to do, right? So, so there, you know, if, if, if shares were to fall from here, there are instruments and, and strategies you could put in place to make money from that. Just as if there are shares going out from here, you could do the same thing. But you have to, as Andrew said, know what's going to happen next. And so those people who will tell you they can make money in, in it. And by the way, it's, it's very possible to make money in all markets, right? It's almost, I'm going to say Andrew, it's actually easy to do that, um, which is an outlandish statement. But I will say it's easy to make a little bit of money in all markets. Mm. And you've got to be careful because what do you want? Do you want to make a little bit of money all the time or do you want to make a lot of money over a very long period of time? Because I don't know about, well, I don't know about you actually, mate, but uh, I, you know, I am happy. Not I don't love share prices falling. I don't love being poorer, but I'm very happy to endure down times, negative returns, you know, for, for periods of time because the long-term performance has been astonishingly good. And that kind of is the question. That is the only answer. How do you make money in down markets? No idea. 
Well, sorry, I do have an idea. How do I maximize, can I maximize my returns over the long term trying to make money in down markets? That's much, 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 much harder. Some people will say they can. Some people probably even can. You can look around and try and find them, but just make sure you understand what they're selling you and why they're selling it to you. We've got nothing to sell on this podcast. I mean, I guess you could join Strawman, you can join The Motley Fool, so maybe we've got a vested interest in it. Uh, but I'll tell you how we've invested for the last 11 years at Share Advisor. Andrew worked at The Motley Fool. He's now doing it himself at Strawman. He's done himself as a, as a private investor, as a self-directed investor. He's not a retail investor, as we know. Not a retail um, investor. You know, all those, all those things. So, yeah, you know. I appreciate the question, mate. Um, you've been lucky or right holding money for the last six months and not investing because the market has fallen. But in a different world, uh, the market might have risen for that entire time. We just we can't know other than in hindsight and extrapolation doesn't, doesn't generally speaking, work in investing. As Warren Buffett has said, if history was all that mattered, the richest people in the world would be librarians. Uh, so yep. it's a it's a lovely, lovely lovely line, but it's also true. Can I just I mean, add something got, here as well on this? Because often sometimes when you give answers like that, it feels mm. like, I don't think we do, but I often hear it sort of phrased as in, Other well, you, you can, but you really need to leave that to the professionals. You yeah, know, right, bless right, your right. little cotton socks, you know, that's, <laughs> you, you, it's really okay. not for you Fair, type yeah. thing. And I yeah. hate that kind of stuff. I hate it for, yes. um, for, for, for the fact that it's just purely condescending. And I, I yeah, think yeah. investing well is well within the capacity of, of any, you know, um, any person really who, who yep. cares to put the, the time and effort into it. Yep. But it also assumes that the professionals know what they're doing. I'm going to be a, <laughs> perhaps a little bit unfair here. And I Go say on. this with the greatest of love and respect because I really like um, John Hampton. He's a he's probably one of our most famous um, short sellers. Yep. He's got a really good record. Um, uh, but the fund that he runs, the Amalthea Fund, uh, launched in May of 2013, this is a long. It's what you call a long short fund. So mm-hmm. this is one that's very much geared at making money in falling markets. Mm-hmm. Well, it's underperformed. It's underperformed the the benchmark over that in, not by a massive amount. And yep. in fact, so far in twenty twenty two, it's outperformed the market. Yep. But on balance, it's actually. And if you look go to the website, you'll see it's most of the time it, it, the the chart is below the benchmark. In other words, here is one of. And I say this genuinely, one of the smartest investors that I know of is well worth a follow on Twitter, incredibly bright guy doing an incredibly tough job. And since he's done, I mean, this, this is, he's been doing this for, for almost 10 years on this fund and yeah. he's, he's been beaten by a passive index. Yep. So, so th- does that mean that you shouldn't or can't? No, it doesn't. But it, it, it should, if anything, highlight to you just the diabolical difficulty in being the kind of investor slash trader is probably a better term who can pivot to market conditions and, you know, yep. yeah, you know. And I, I really okay. resonate with a lot of you. I remember, remember where him and um, who was it came out to Australia and that's shorted right. the banks and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. um because the australian property Sean bubble Jonathan, someone i want to say i can't remember now but yeah, yeah. uh i mean, no. really like you know you know me scott it just it's so resonated with i i was i was all in on on their thesis i thought yes, that these yeah. guys are, are gonna nail it yeah they lost the squillion yeah you know yeah uh, lost the squillion in covid mm-hmm. you know yeah, really anyway. good, really good point. Uh, question from I'll call him Jay because, or her Jay because uh, the the Instagram handle that it comes from without saying who it's from uh, is it seems like a, a first initial and a last name. So I won't I won't mention the whole thing. I give it as a direct message. So Jay says hi Scott, big fan of the show. I have a question for the podcast. I'm good, Jay. Machine. Thanks, thanks for asking. Didn't ask how I was. She said hi. Send it to my Instagram account, Andrew. If you have Instagram, you might have got a message from Jay too. Don't be jealous because you're not playing. Rele- hate- Relevance deprivation Hate syndrome, the game, not the players. Andrew, hate the game, not the players. <laughs> I've been trying to educate myself over the last couple of months, says Jay, on what I should do with my savings and future earnings. I'm thoroughly enjoying the journey. 
Since you're not allowed to give specific financial advice, I have a hypothetical question that is definitely not about me. And Jay, Jay goes on there to be very specific. Say I was a 26-year-old professional. And Jay says in brackets, I can feel your hatred of this hypothetical person already. Yes, I do hate young people. Uh, get off my lawn. With no substantial expenses, working in the engineering space, earning over 100, or plus or minus, 100 grand a year. Say I was able to save, or say I was, or he was maybe, Jay, you might say, uh, save two and a half or three grand a month after tax and expenses. Say I also had 70 grand in the bank slowly depreciating. This is very hypothetical, but very specific, Jay. Very specific. Finally, let's also say this person might want to break into the housing market. I'm not going on the housing ladder. That could have been better, Jay. In Don't the next five ladder. years, but can't be certain. Uh, Jay says spending 900 bucks a month on rent seems like wasted money. If this person was you, apart from being happy with the extra years, yeah, you bastard, what would you do? Like everyone, I'm concerned about the current market and very aware that while long-term investing is always the way to go, uh, maybe it's not the best idea if I could be down in five years and wanting to buy my first house. Hypothetically, Jay's got a decent amount of money in the bank. Hypothetically, Jay can save a lot of money a year. And in five years' time, that's going to be a decent chunk of change. Uh, hypothetically, Andrew, someone... someone I, I, so I mean, we're being funny. I do need to be a little bit careful here. The more information you give us, even when we pretend and joke around, um, the more that it sounds like personal advice and ASIC may have interpreted it that way. So I'm just going to say, Andrew, that we, we need to kind of step a little bit away from Jay's specifics, obviously, and just talk about the broader idea. So, you know, 70 grand in the bank, um, saving, I'm going to say, 25 grand a year, 30 grand a year, uh, five years. Uh, if it was you, mate, would you be putting money, putting it all aside, living it in cash, saving up for the house in five years? Would you be investing it, letting things run? What would you, what would you, what approach would you take if you were twenty six again? I did like how Jay said at the end to buy a house, um, as opposed First to earlier saying he wanted to get into the market. <laughs> uh, you're in the market you when you're like transacting, that. right? Once you've bought a house, you've bought a house. You're not in the market anymore. Um, so just <sighs> another little bugbear of mine oh, man, and again the symptomatic of the financialization of, of these of these things anyway um <laughs> i would uh, given the time frame i would probably want to actually leave a little bit of cash on the sidelines if it was me okay. um i think five years is a pretty good time to to um to write out any sort of volatility and mm. negativity and the rest of it the big factor here is is that if it was just a lump sum and there was no extra money coming in, that makes it a much harder decision. Having 70K and then an extra 30K each year means that even if things, like you put all your 70 in and then things, just the bottom falls out of the market, well, then you're putting in 30 at a lower and maybe it goes lower, I don't know. Then you're putting, you're averaging, your dollar cost averaging along the way. So the only reason that this doesn't make sense is on a dollar, dollar um, average money weighted basis the market is still down after all of that in five years, which historically is not impossible, but, but very unlikely. I, mm. I'm struggling to think of a time where a strategy like that wouldn't have worked. I can think of five-year periods where the market has been down, yeah. even with dividends, but I can't think of a period where you would have been down having dollar cost mm. average mm. so significant, like putting 50% in extra each year. Yeah. That I really, I, I just don't know off the top of my head, but I think it would, I'd, I'd go out on a limb to say that you could de definitely count the instances in the last hundred years on one hand, if not three fingers, if not two fingers. <laughs> um, so statistically, mm. you're, in, you're in a pretty good shape to invest a very large chunk of that. But because, you know, there's no guarantees, um, uh, you, you, I don't know, maybe, maybe you leave a little mm. bit aside mm. just in mm. case. Um, but there's, there, again, there's the risk in that as well. So you go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to do that. Five years later, the market's up, you know, 50% from where it is today. And I go, oh, Jesus, I know I would have had so much more if I just invested a lot. Um, 
again, it's like the earlier point. Any decision, there is a compromise to be taken. Do you want the yeah. certainty of cash and the certainty of inflation that comes with that? Um, but you're not gonna you're not gonna have the bottom fall out of you, or do you want the upside potential of the market and 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 face the volatility and the potential that things are still down on a money weighted basis after that period of time? Mm. <laughs> we'll know in five years. That's and this is why th- these questions are really sent to to kill us, mate. Because you know th- there will be, if if we do this podcast every year and answer the same question every year, in some periods subsequently we would look like dills, and most periods after that we'd look like geniuses. And yeah. Jay, I I. So I've used the example before. My mother-in-law uh, wanted me to help her invest her superannuation. I did it. We took it out of it was in cash and something else. I can't remember now. Um, and we invested all in shares in one day. Why would you take way. it out of take well, it out of where it was? I'm sure it was getting an excellent after fee performance. Uh, there was there was uh, it, yes. No, let's not go into that. Oh, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't. Blow, it wasn't. Knock me over with a feather. No, it wasn't. It wasn't just in. It wasn't just in funds. It was there was some artwork and things involved. I don't, I don't want to talk about it now. Uh, but uh, suffice it to say, it was better in shares than not. Uh, I invested all in one day, and that could have been the first day of a five year decline. And mm. she may have had much less money if I had done it on the you know 19th of February 2020. I would look an absolute moron. The, the the reality is mathematically you are very 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 likely to make money over five years in the market but not guaranteed and mm-hmm. right now jay in five years time and you know in, in november 2027 you're either going to say oh, those are motley for money boys geez they're smart or bastard motley for money boys they should have told me to do x y and z and it'll go both ways if we don't say get go fully invested now and the market goes up you're like they should just invest the whole lot. And if it goes down, say, they should have told me to hold fire. Mm. Uh, and it's why it's, it's why it's important. By the way, it's also why we can't give personal advice. So I'm not going to tell you what you should do, Jay. Um, I, my general answer with this is if you have flexibility around the timing of your purchase, I would be in the market with both feet personally, if it was me. If my wife said, we, I, I, we want to buy a house somewhere between 2026 and 2030, depending on where the market is, we find the right place. Our timing's pretty flexible to see how we go. I'm... I am two feet in, all in, in the market and let it ride because I can choose when to sell or not to sell based on prevailing share prices. If she said, honey, I love you and I want to buy a house in November 2027 come hell or high water, I would probably not invest a cent of that. Maybe some of it, but the reality is whatever you do invest, if it goes down, you're losing money, on, you're losing some money on some of that you know, if it goes down. So if I, if, I, and if I knew that it had to be a certain value house and I needed a certain amount of money for the deposit and that was just what it was, if I knew I could reliably bank that, and I knew that I knew that I knew at that point I'll have X dollars in the bank, then I would go with it. So those are the two, those are the two ways I would think about it. The third way though is that it's, this is again impossible to know. The property market will, I can say market this time, Andrew, because I'm talking about the whole market, not just mm-hmm. getting on. Getting That's, appropriate. The That's appropriate. Um, the market will move, as will the share market. And the other thing you need to think about, Jay, is over five years, maybe property crashes, maybe it goes nowhere, maybe it goes up. So again, the bogey you're chasing is also worth thinking about. Because again, you talk about cash, cash in the bank, he says slowly depreciating. That's true. But in a purchasing power perspective, if housing goes up, let's be let's be conservative. Let's say it goes up 20% between now and then. And maybe that's not conservative, by the way, in the event, but let's give it a say, You and I have a different definition of- Well, but let's say it goes down, well, that's, that's like three and a half percent a year. Um, let's say it goes down to the 10% now and then goes back up and it's up 20% in, in five years time. You'll be able to buy 20% less house because you won't have had your money invested in a- you know, an appreciating asset you'll be in cash instead. So not only is it appreciating against inflation, but if you're if the asset class you're investing into or going to invest into rises over that time, the longer you wait to to get some sort of return on that money, the further away that asset becomes in terms of affordability. So those are the considerations. If it was me, 
I'd invest with both feet if I could have a flexible purchase date. If I had a reasonably fixed purchase date uh, or wanted to know that I know that I know that I'm going to have at least that much money, then you've answered the question for yourself, I reckon. How we go with that one, Ram? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty good. I, I I suspect from the way that the question was was phrased that there is no specific date and there's yes. flexibility around exactly. that. Might and, want to. And yep. So I I would I mean again general and this is just me. I would be more inclined to invest the, the large amount of that and and continue to no matter. Why only a large amount, though, mate? Why not the lot or nothing? That's the bit I'm not. I, I, I would, uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm it's, it's, honestly it's just a bit of ass covering for for the, sake <laughs> of the, for the pod. So, yeah, Love so it. me, me personally, yeah, I would. I mean, I've got, a, I've got, a, but I'm very mindful. I've, I've just personally got a very high risk tolerance. Yeah. Um. So, and, and so I don't want to put that. Yeah. 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 And that's that's what I mean. So it's just sort of like, yeah. You just everyone, everyone says, oh, I can, I can, I can tolerate volatility until they experience it. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. And even here, I am saying, well, I've got a very high tolerance. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm. Is that true? I think it's true. But I, you know, there are plenty of there are plenty of restless nights when when markets are plummeting, and you you know you you open up the the, the portfolio oh, on your phone, worse. you go, oh, another my God. another day. It's like, oh, seriously, you again? Know? Like, can I have a can I have an update, please? If I if I faced that with perfect equanimity, I'd be lying. You know, it's yeah, it's yeah. extraordinarily extraordinarily difficult to to do, um, and yeah. So I don't know. It's 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 like you know. Oh, if this if X Y Z fell fifty percent, I'd back up the truck. <laughs> BS, you would. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. Guarantee you, you, you won't. You plan. You might to, dip your toe you in. You might yeah. dip your toe yeah. in, but yeah. you won't. And 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 that's just because it's just super 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 hard to do. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. All right, mate. Um, this one's from Will. And you will like Will because he says, To Scott and the chief hey! cook and bottle washer of straw man, a question for the pod. Thanks, My mum has done the right thing and sought professional advice surrounding her financial situation. As a single parent with no assets and a super balance all too often seen in the case of a single mother, my mum has been given some sound financial advice. My concern comes not with the advice, but the cost of the advice and the ongoing costs associated. Oh, kill me now. Earning an average of 50 grand a year, this advice initially was costing her $4,000 a year. Scumbags. After tax, this is probably 10% of her take-home pay. They recently upheld her to a, quote, more active approach and monitoring, end quote, which now costs over $5,000 a year. Scumbags. As a percentage of take-home pay, I don't even want to calculate this. Now that she has been given a sound strategy and a framework to retirement has been put in place, is it worth her continuing to pay a relatively obscene amount of money in continuing this advice? No. I am frustrated and confused as to how a supposedly reputable financial advisor and firm believe the ongoing costs of over 10% of her take-home pay to manage her situation can actually be a good thing for her in the long run and in, quote, the best interest of the client, end quote. I don't want to manage her finances, but now I'm thinking of getting her to pull her funds from the client, that's I think he means the manager, and distributing into standard Australian, US, and global ETFs. We love your thoughts. Cheers, Will. P.S. to the above. A quick calculation on the Money Smart Compound Interest Calculator. Taking the annual five grand management fee and investing it at over 10 years, assuming 7.5% return, gives her $81,000 in additional capital. If you were to continue paying the management fees over this time, you should have lost putting 50 grand to work in the market, an overall different position of $130,000. Well, I reckon you've answered the question for yourself, mate. Uh, we can't tell you what you should do or your mum should do. Do the it. Missing, the missing link here is you talk about the, the fees of the percentage of take-home pay. 
Um, we should be also including the, the asset value, of course, because if, you know I'm sure this is not the case. If you had a million dollar investment and forty grand in take home pay, that's a very different story to having sure. you know, fifteen grand sure. in investing and, and fifty grand in take home pay. So it's probably the wrong comparison to use take home pay as the basis for that, and so we probably should just at least at least allow for that possibility. Um, otherwise, I will echo Andrew's points. They sound like complete scumbags, um, and I'm glad I don't know who they are because I can't be sued for saying so. Uh, they sound like absolute scumbags. If if they can, with any good conscience, sleep at night, then good luck to them. Um, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe they charge five grand a year, but but on that fifty grand, they're getting a thirty percent compound annual return. Money well spent. <laughs> Sorry. Money well spent. If yes, if they are, happen to be Warren Buffett and they're they're just knocking it out of the park, that is that is exceptionally. Yep. You know, keep doing that. I would I would hazard a guess that they have probably underperformed the market, and if not, at best, maybe outperformed by a percent or two. There's just there's no way in good conscience you you can do this. Um, absolute scum of the earth. They know exactly what they're doing, and it's, it's I've got to be careful here because sometimes you put some financial planners' nose out of joint. I, I think mm-hmm. financial planners, as an industry, is a very worthwhile industry. I think actually there's a lot of good stuff there. Some of the some of the models around how it's charged is is um, unconscionable. Yep. Um, uh, but it's it's not to say there's no value in it, right? Like I'll even I love to put the boot into real estate agents. They're providing a valuable service. There's no question that they are. Yeah. I mean, is it is it worth you know tens of thousands of dollars for to sell a pro- probably not? You know, probably not. Is, yeah. is 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 are they giving reasonable financial advice? I'm sure they are. I'm, you know, I'll give them benefit of the doubt. But yeah. but is it is it worth ten percent of the capital base? Yeah. No, it's not. Especially when, as Will rightly points out. You know, you yeah. can you can do this. It's they the the greatest trick the industry ever pulled was to convince people that it's too too complicated for them to to do, and that therefore you need to rely on us, no matter how many royal commissions and investigations and just pure financial history and 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 um, <laughs> performance figures will will tell you otherwise. It's just mm. buy a broad based ETX, average into it as often as you can. Wait, that's it. That, full stop, right? Is that going to be buying you a Ferrari next week? No. Are you likely to outperform um, 90% of the quote-unquote experts after fees? Yes. You know? Um, uh, yeah. Sorry. I've ran, rant over. I could go on, but I won't. I think <laughs> I was I've it's never, it's made never my over, point. Just, just pause oh, for a minute. Mate, it just sickens me, mate. sickens right. me. You're absolutely right. I, I love this question from Josh for a million different reasons, Andrew. He says, um, Scooter, he calls me. I did, didn't mention you, but, but just let me, <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me finish the question. Hope you're going well. Feel free to jazz this question up if you do ask it on the podcast. I'm a few wines in, he says, <laughs> which I love. Uh, and, then he, and then he says, I love the fact he's not only a few wines in, he's just outsourcing his research. I'm sure I can do some simple research to find the answer. Thanks very much, Josh. But I thought I'd respond to the request for extra extra questions on the mailbag. It's a noob question, which the cool kids, that means like I'm a newbie, I'm, a, I'm new at this, which I know I know the kids made on. N-O-O-B, love it. Correct. Yep. Noob. Don't you have to do it with zeros? Isn't, isn't that the officially cool way to do it? Or is it oh, nice? if you're really cool, you can do it with zeros. Yeah, sure. All right. All right. Sure. Noob question. But could you give us some details about buying American index-based ETFs on the ASX and how foreign exchange affects it? Does the beta shares NASDAQ ETF, for example, factor in daily currency changes? This one's pretty straightforward, Josh. I'll grab it. Andrew, you can throw mm-hmm. in some Go thoughts after that. Um, the market maker is beta shares. They are responsible for making sure that the value, the, the price of the ETF, reflects the underlying value of the assets. Those assets are priced in US dollars with a currency um, adjustment made. So uh, effectively, 100 US dollars is worth at some point. 
Oh, sorry, let me do it the other way around. 100 Australian dollars is worth 64 US dollars at some point. That is worth 65. That is worth 63. Um, that will change because the assets of the fund are in US dollars. So yes, I won't say exactly minute by minute, but in real time-ish during the trading day, they absolutely will reflect all those currency changes because you're buying a US dollar asset in Australian dollars. And so it just simply does impact that. And it should almost all the time. That's how it's designed. It's what it's supposed to do. Um, you will see that move during the day also because of things like the NASDAQ futures. So again, because the fair value of the asset isn't just the last traded price of the index itself. If the futures are going to be down 2%, then they will reflect that as well. So it's it's a... It's a um, it's, it is, I was going to say it's art, not science. That's not true. It is science, but it is. there's a whole lot of factors that go into it. They're not just saying, you know, last traded price of American Express was this and the last traded price of Nike was that. And so out of those together, that's the price of your, of your ETF. Mm. But it's not miles off. You take start with that. You add in the, the currency changes. You add on top of that any change in the futures, that is when the market's not officially trading. Uh, and they try and give an approximate value, which is in their interest to get about as right as they can. So that's how it works. Anything else on that from you, mate? No, um, I think that's about right. I just actually, made, while you were speaking there, it yeah. made me wonder how that has actually helped uh, in the in the in the current fine or oh, the current calendar year. So right. the NDQ beta, which we talked about before, the beta shares Nasdaq has gone yes. from thirty six to twenty six dollars, near yeah. enough. Uh, but we also know that the Aussie dollar has dropped fifteen percent as well. Yeah. So if, uh, uh, maybe over the year, but over the last six months or so. You have to yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, very quickly, sorry, bear with me, bear with me. Real-time research joke. here. Tell a joke, Scott. Money. Here we go. Uh, 15,500 down to 10,900. So uh, actually not that. I was trying to make the point. <laughs> <laughs> Tell <laughs> the truth, it might have a good story. I got anyway. to I got to dig into that in a little bit more detail. But I, I was going to make sometimes it sometimes <laughs> it's going to work very much in your favour, right? Yes, oh, absolutely. Yes, it goes both ways. So yeah, Go, it goes both yeah. ways. Yeah, it's a, it, it would be the same in theory. It should be the same as trend. Yeah, as taking Australian dollars, trading the US dollars, buying the CTF on the US exchange, and they're doing the same on the way back. But obviously, they just save you the hassle by doing it all in Australian dollars and on our exchange, which makes life very easy for everybody. Oh, there you go. No, you're about you're about four and a half percent better off. There you go. There you go. Hey, another one from Patrick uh, who says, "Hi, Scott and Andrew. There you go. Twice you've been mentioned, mate. By this time, by name, even a Just question for the podcast, please. You have spoken in the past about leverage and the pros and cons, including the differences between theory and practice of managing the risk. Yes, we have. I have a question about debt recycling by drawing down on one's home. As I understand the theory." One's investment strategy does not change, but there are tax benefits by drawing against a home and investing. For example, mm. if I had $10,000 to invest anyway, I could draw this against the home loan and claim the interest. This seems incredible, but I have this niggling feeling I'm missing some risk. Grateful if you could share your thoughts in general. Thanks so much. I'm yet to miss an episode since I began at the start of 2020. Good man. Thank you, Patrick. That's from Patrick, obviously. Uh, mate, why why borrow? Why not just invest ten grand versus borrowing ten grand of the home loan to invest instead? Uh, because if you if you do the latter, you're now investing with twenty grand, and if everything goes up ten uh, percent, I've now made two grand. Yes. Um, in the fall, when I've just had ten grand and it's gone up ten percent, I've made one grand. So I've actually doubled my profit. Yes. Now there's a cost to that. I've got to pay interest on the money that I've borrowed, and I've got to pay the money back at some point. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, I don't have to pay the profit back. So I pay my ten grand back. I pay a little bit in interest, mm -hmm. but I've still got I've still got well more than a thousand dollars. So mm -hmm. I've, I've absolutely magnified my my gain. So that's that's why you would do it. Right. Um, why and, didn't you do it? Um, actually. 
I, I think if you had adequate buffer on your home loan. So the great thing about the home loan is that you, uh, you're not going to get the margin call, which, mm. is, which is the real benefit. Yep. Now, you wouldn't want to do it so that you're stretched so much that if anything untoward or unexpected mm. happens in your life, you're just right against the wall. But yeah. if you've got heaps of equity in your home, you know, you could do what every other Australian in the world does and just like <laughs> flip that into 400 different two-bedroom units. <laughs> or, or just putting it out there, you could, you could draw that down and you could buy some really high-quality businesses. And uh, I, don't, I, actually, I actually think, again, th- th- this isn't a black and white thing. There's, there's, there's the all-in up to the eyeballs and there's just, you know, just a little, little bit extra conservatively and prudently done. And I, I actually... I, I struggle to think of a good reason why you wouldn't do that. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure how I read the question. I read the question actually as, should I should I save 10 and, 10 and invest it or borrow 10 and invest it? I, I didn't see a bit of a, a plus plus. You were saying, uh, if I had 10 and invest anyway, I could draw this against the home line and claim the interest. Um, so Patrick, the, mm. I, I think that the bottom line is that you get to claim the a deduction for the interest but you don't get to claim the whole interest. So it's a bit like negative gearing. You're still losing money to do it. You might be losing a little bit less once you get the tax benefit, but the interest is still costing you real money. And so it, it is, to Andrew's point, that is the benefit of leverage. As long as you're making a, a return that's larger than the loan mm. uh, after the tax is paid and, and the tax deduction is is, is claimed, mm. then you're ahead. So yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and I think that's true. You don't get to, the, the, the interest still has to be paid. You don't just get the tax benefit. You've got to have handed over some interest. And if you hand over $1,000 in interest, you might save somewhere between, I don't know, 150 and $450 in tax, which is good, but you've still paid out somewhere between five and 800 bucks in, in actual interest costs you don't get back. So you get, you get to save money on the tax on the interest amount, but you don't, it's, not, it's, not like a, it's not a tax credit. It's a, it's a reduction of your taxable income which means you still actually have outlaid that cash, which is which is a very real thing. So again, to Andrew's point, the, the reason you would do it is, yes, you, you still pay the interest. So it's, you know, it costs you more to borrow 10 than to save 10 because you don't have to pay anything back if you've saved it. Um, you have to pay the interest back even after the tax deduction, you're still going to pay something out if you borrow it. So net, net, 10 grand of your own cash, uh, you're, you are further ahead than 10 grand of the bank's cash if, that, if those are your two choices. Now, if you can do both, as Andrew says, or you have some combination, then that's absolutely where there is benefit because you use that leverage that increments in the increment. Uh, but if it's simply a matter of either or, you will you will have less money left over if you borrow than if you don't, because that's just you know if, if it's a choice of or, um, that that would be the answer, mate. So that that is the answer. That the the deduction is nice, but you have to have had outgoings for that deduction to be claimed, and the, the deduction is never greater than the outgoing. So you're, you're still you're still behind in absolute cash terms if you were choosing between the two. But you kind of never are really because you could invest the 10 and borrow the 10 to Andrew's point. You just borrow the 10. There's a million things in between that you could you could look at or do if you wanted to. Does that make sense, Andrew? Yeah, yep. Nice. Thank you, mate. I concur. Uh, <laughs> I'm always happier when you concur. It makes me feel like I've answered the question properly. That's, that's, always, a, <laughs> that's always a good thing, mate. It's always what I prefer to do uh, if I if I ever have the choice. Mate, let uh, <laughs> Let's move on to another. I don't want to give you too much, too many compliments. Yeah, not good for me, not good for you. Uh, let's move on to another question. Um, this one was from, let me scroll through. Sorry, guys. Here we go. From Paul. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Roy and HG. Love the podcast. And thanks for answering my previous question on your podcast about shoveling people's money into ETF. On a different note, I've wondered a few times through the current bear market why the message is simply stay the course, which I totally agree with. 
And I don't recall messaging such as, you still have the same number of shares or you are still getting dividends. I have the mindset of this is potentially a good buying opportunity. In my mind, there are more reasons to stay the course, yet that messaging is not coming through. Am I not hearing it? Or are these benefits I mentioned not relevant? I like this one, mate, because it does, you know, we, I think we assume a lot when we say things. You know, stay mm. the course for us is stay invested, keep adding dollar cost average. You've talked about a couple of those already. Mm. Um, but maybe it, but maybe it's true. You know, we we we, we say stay the course as, as I think shorthand for all of the things, frankly, that Paul's already talked about. But mm. maybe maybe putting them in a bit uh, a bit more detail actually makes makes it more effective, makes more sense, helps people a little bit more. So let's go to let's go to uh, let's take Paul's three points to start with. Firstly, mm-hmm. you still have the same number of shares. I really like that one. That's a nice yep. idea of saying you know, if you liked the business before, you still got the same number of shares. Yeah, the price is a bit lower for now, but you own, and you've said already in this podcast, a piece of an operating business, hopefully with a bright future. All those things are are absolutely true. You should want that to be true. And that does give you the same proportional ownership, as long as there's no equity raises or something else, of, of another business. I think that that's a really good point. I'm smiling here because you it, reminds, it reminds me of a meme in Bitcoin, which is, you oh. know, whenever the price falls, People go one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> um, so, but it's you know it's true, yeah, it, and yeah. it, it's 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 and exactly the point being made here is that you're yes. you still whatever percentage of yeah. of company X, Y, and Z you owned before yeah. you still do. I think it's a great way to think yeah. about it. In fact, now you've got the opportunity to own more at a much cheaper price than 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 you would have uh, previously. So yeah, great. So let's great go to that one. Let's go to that third point. He says, mm-hmm. "quote This is potentially a good buying opportunity." I think we kind of imply that um but i don't think we necessarily say it as loudly as we could i think it's a good point right yes but you've Ooh, got to be ca- you've got to be careful here because there are there are so-called value traps and they're yeah. they're they're really pernicious they, they um things we, we make the point often but it, really you've got to hammer at home something isn't cheap because it's half the price of what it was Something is cheap because it's fallen further below what a objective, rational person considers its true intrinsic value. To, to throw a lot of sort of jargony words sort of out <laughs> yeah. there, covered it nicely. But it's possible for it's po- yeah. as we've said before, it's possible for a stock to get quote unquote cheaper as the mm-hmm. price rises because yeah. the fundamentals are just improving at a, at a far greater rate. And it's it's absolutely possible for a company to get more expensive yeah. as the share price falls because the fundamentals are deteriorating. And, uh, Irrespective been... of the share price, too, we should be really, really clear here. We're not saying we're not saying because the share price is falling, or daily yeah. as the share price falls a little bit, it gets a little bit more expensive. It's just that over between two points of time, the share yep. price could be lower, and the business could be more or less valuable, and the same when it goes up. Yep, and maybe the business is actually unchanged at all, but it was just like insanely overvalued at a yeah, point in time, yeah. and now the market's come back to something that's more reasonable yet still above your appraisal of a fair and sensible and true price. Mm. So it's so. So, so that's why there's always a but here because I think in, too often we like to protect our egos by saying, oh, it's cheap, I'll buy more. And if I average down, my average entry price is lower so the loss doesn't look as bad. And it's all of these yep, things. Yep, so yep. so, so the, the, the question is, the, the framing is right, is that it is potentially an opportunity to, uh. to, to average down, but just make sure that you're making that, that, that appraisal on not on what the share price has done, mm-hmm. but on, on what you think the business is really worth. Nice. And my last one, or the third one, it was the second one you mentioned, but last one we're going to cover. You are still getting dividends. I think this is a really, really important one. Not everyone's yeah. investing in dividend-paying shares, to be fair, so it's not, a, not necessarily appropriate for everybody. And sometimes even the dividends are cut, like they were during the COVID crash, some of the banks had to cut or suspend their dividends. So 
you're not always still getting dividends but it's pretty one of the things again to speak about my mother-in-law as i was before when we sort of put that money in part of the part of the rationale i, I basically said look here's a here's a portfolio i would suggest for you and yes, share price is going to be volatile because yeah, she wasn't a share market investor before that. I was like, yep, share, market, share price is going to be volatile. Look how volatile they were during the, it was then, I used the GFC as the example. It was a few years ago now. Uh, and I showed the, the the proposed portfolio I was going to get her to invest in. And I said, okay, look, here, here's what happened to the share price. Here's what happened to the dividends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no thoughts on that? I I, I uh, uh, pausing so you could jump into them. Sorry, I thought you. I thought there was more. To come. Um, <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> uh, absolutely, and I've I referenced Peter Thornhill on this point before too. He makes yeah. it re- very well in um, in his book Motivated Money, which is kind of mm-hmm. generous to call it a book. It's more of a pamphlet, and I don't say that critically because he just it's, it's a lot of value packed into a very short space, and it's mm-hmm. it's my go to book for for when people say, why should I invest in shares? So when you're at that yeah. right at the beginning of your journey, before you get want to dive into valuations or anything mm-hmm. more complex, mm-hmm. just like, why would I invest in shares? Shares are risky. It's just yeah. like, it just lays out the case. And one of the arguments he makes is, yeah, share prices move all over the place, but corporate mm-hmm. earnings, corporate dividends actually don't change that much at all, even over very tumultuous periods. Um, I, I, we always give, there's always the classic examples, but again, I love to go outside of the, the, the top, top part of the market the company i think is a really good example of this is arb if you drive a four-wheel nice. drive you know exactly what i'm talking about because they make every bull bar you just you'll see them everywhere they make bull bars all kinds of accessories for your for your um four-wheel drive mm-hmm. camping etc cetera, etc cetera. uh wonderful company never missed a beat with their dividends never missed a beat as far as i can you go back as, as long as you, as you want good times bad and they've just they've just continued to truck along and if you didn't, if you for some reason didn't have access to see what the share price was doing, and all you got were your dividend checks, well, well direct credits. Let's let's modernise this. Um, <laughs> you know, all, all you see is every year I get a pay rise. Yeah. I get a pay yeah. rise. I get a pay rise. I get a pay rise. Good times and bad, and 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 that's a wonderful thing. And that is that is definitely a good north starter to focus on. I like that, mate. That's very very nicely done. I yes, I think that's right. I own ARB shares, by the way, but you're exactly right. There's plenty of other examples too that of companies. Solpats I own it paid dividend every year for 100 and something years. Um, yep. That that's the sort. You know, it doesn't have to be the only way to invest. I'm not saying just buy dividend shares. It's just to, to the point you, you you raise, Paul. That's kind of the you know if you can keep that in mind um, as part of your as part of how you get through this period of time. Uh, super super important. Mate, let's finish with a question from I think it's Tendai. I hope I pronounced that correctly. T e n d a i. Hi, Scott and Ram. Name checked again, mate. You're coming Excellent. back. You're coming up Excellent. Your <laughs> podcast is a must-have to maintain composure in this volatile market environment. Thanks, Tendo. Nice. This time last year, I was one of the top performing fund managers with my small portfolio delivering an average annual return of 30% on paper. Boom. Fast forward 12 months, my portfolio was in negative 7 to 10% territory on paper. Uh, your podcast helps me sleep at night brackets mainly because of the humor random tangents and non-stop rambling is that because you can't get to sleep so you put well, that's, the pot on and, and then that's what like i'm wondering knocked out <laughs> helps me sleep at night or helps me go to sleep at night they're very very different he, he says sleep at night not go to sleep so i'm going to assume that that's uh where we're, we're improving the, the pre-sleep but maybe it's just helping him sleep uh question for the podcast on thursday the 27th of october the market was up a little bit so i checked my portfolio to see if it had raised some of the negative returns over the past few months most of my holdings are up 1% to 2% for the day, except for ACL, Australian Clinical Labs. I checked their ASX announcements and discovered they had been the victim of a cybersecurity incident. Hence, the price was down and by a long way. Given that cybersecurity incidents could have such a big impact on share prices, A, 
should a company's cybersecurity capability now form part of any investment thesis? And B, what are the real-world impacts of cybersecurity incidents on businesses? Aside from, he says, share price movements, Mr. Market tends to overreact. Mm. P.S. Ram, when are you going to bite the bullet and get back on the property ladder? <laughs> Full on. <laughs> quality troll. Quality, quality troll. troll, wasn't yeah, it? I like that. Um, I'm going to assume the answer. We'll leave the answer to the P.S. But, uh, but uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, mate. So... We've covered a little bit, but let's let's just go directly to the question. Should a company's cybersecurity in your mind capability now form part of any investment thesis? Is that something you're going to start doing or doing more of? So I think, yeah, it makes a hell of a lot of sense that the 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 difficulty is how do you appraise it? Like, so what do you do? Like even best case scenario, you can ring up the CEO and say, hey, you guys take cybersecurity <laughs> seriously. Yeah, yeah. They are never going to say, oh, actually, no. I mean, they're, they're going to say, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, uh, so, so unless you're somehow able to get in and mm. audit and be, have some <laughs> domain expertise, I don't know how you measure it. So it's kind of, it, it's not, it's not that it's not important. And I think that it absolutely should be a focus. And hopefully with all of these horrible incidents recently, it's, it's really put corporate Australia on notice and they are taking it much more Good seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I just don't know how you, 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 you peel that, that, that orange. I just don't know how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what do, uh, and then there's and there's different companies will will be impacted to different degrees. There'll be some companies that really maybe they're only they don't really need much personal information. They actually don't have much data that's worth sort of stealing. Yeah. Uh, others others might have a lot more. There's a spectrum there as well. So um, I'm trying to think of some examples off the top of my head, but I, I imagine the reject shop, for example. Doesn't really have that much personal, you know, valuable yeah, right. data. These right, guys like right. it's not a high value. It's, it's not like it's not like if you hacked Commonwealth Bank, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I think it's I think it's right to be mindful of. I well, how do, how would you approach it? I am going to take the exact opposite view, mate. Um, yeah. Not because it doesn't matter, but because it's one of those we've talked about. Howard Marx's two by two grid, important and knowable. Mm. Um, if you'd have asked Optus how serious they took cybersecurity and how much work they're doing to avoid it and how big their cybersecurity team was and which consultants they'd engaged, the day before the hack, they would have said, and I absolutely, mm. I absolutely believe they would have believed it to their core. We have done as much yeah. as we possibly can to make sure this is not going to be a problem for us. I, I am absolutely sure they would have. And I could be wrong, but I'm absolutely sure they would have engaged a lot of cybersecurity hackers and white hats and experts and whatever to make sure they were as, as squeaky clean as they could be. Just as Telstra did. And the same day before those two hacks, they would have given identical answers. Mm. Now, in hindsight, we go, well, obviously Optus was the problem. Obviously, and people do a lot of hindsight, Harry, right? Mm. Well, obviously Optus' security is lax and this and that and the other. Uh, and it might well be. Again, these things aren't unknowable necessarily, but the luck and the timing and the chance involved, it's just crazy. So, so honestly, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to spend any extra time on it, um, partly because I'm going to assume most CEOs now actually are really super fixated on it, and they should be. So I'm not, I'm not saying they shouldn't care about it, shouldn't try. What I'm saying is, as you said, mate, no one's going to say we're not doing it. And then the one who gets hacked, is it foreseeable? I don't, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I, I'm not entirely sure... No, 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 no. CEO says, "Yeah, we didn't bother doing much about it because we don't think it's going to be a risk." Like, and not they're not just going to say that; they're never going to actually do that. They're going to say, "We're going to make sure we've engaged some consultants. We're doing this. We're doing that, doing the other. We've done everything we can. We we think we're as you know, we're as well positioned as we can be." They won't promise they can't get hacked because that's also stupid. And then when they get hacked, they go, "Well, oh, bugger, we didn't know that was there." Of course, they didn't know. That's that's mm. kind of the point, right? Mm. Um, so look, no, I I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to factor it in. Not because I don't care. Um, just because I don't. I don't think it's knowable in advance and frankly it's certainly not by us like really honestly if you're a cybersecurity guru and you have some way of qualitatively assessing it then maybe sure 
um, I think future value of or any of these companies, even ACL that I haven't haven't followed the story closely, share price did crash. Um, it'll whatever it does, it'll do. And in five years' time, it'll be valued not on the cybersecurity hack of 2022, but on the earnings that the company's delivering at that point. Is cyber going to be the issue? No, it's not. Uh, Optus will lose some customers. Absolutely. Now, frankly, I think also, by the way, at a customer level, if you're if the business your customer have just got hacked, uh, a your information is already gone. B aren't they the ones most likely to be trying it hardest not to get hacked a second time? So I don't know. You know, bolting after the or trying to go after the horse is bolted, or it's like fund managers. People sell. You know, people. When a fund goes well, everyone piles in after it goes well. When it goes badly, they all sell out after it goes badly. It's, it, mm. it, it makes no sense to me to behave after the fact, right? The one to go to is the one that's just doubled down on its cyber. No, I don't know. Optus could get hacked tomorrow. I'm not. Again, it's not a single case issue. It's not a guarantee. But I don't know. Statistically, I reckon if you went to every, it's like going to every fund that had a bad year. If you went to every every business that just got hacked, you know, six months after the hack and became a customer of theirs. I reckon your chances of, of having your information stolen is much, much, much lower than it might be. So yep. again, that, I might be wrong, but that's my guess. Yep. Yep. Agree. Mate, I reckon we are done. If you want a question answered on the podcast, please make sure you do send us an email, a tweet, an Instagram direct message, or a Facebook direct message. I think I've covered all those. Um, you can get Andrew exclusively on Elon Musk's new toy, Twitter, uh, at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. You can get me there or on Insta at TMF Scott P or on Facebook at uh, Scott Phillips Money. You can also get me on Mastodon at Scott Phillips. Have you tried Mastodon yet, Andrew? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Tell me about it. Uh, it's some open source Twitter-like thing that some of the cool kids were trying out after Elon took over Twitter. So I now have an account there. I'm, I'm the only person in the oh. last week who's used the hashtag Ozbiz. So I'm literally in it. Yeah, they reckon Twitter's an echo chamber. Mastodon is an even bigger echo chamber because there's literally nobody else there. Someone said, oh, will you try it if, if Twitter goes bad? I said, oh, I might try it. I don't know. So I literally signed up just for the fun of it and there's nothing going on. Uh, but if you are on Mastodon, hit me up. Just make me feel a little bit less unloved. That would be nice. Um, at, at Scott Phillips. I'm just, I'm being silly. I actually am there, but I don't expect anyone else to be there. Or info at fool.com.au if you want to send us an email. Maybe you might even be a Mastodon next week. What do you reckon, Ram? Actually, it's a huge topic for maybe another pod episode, but <laughs> Jack, Jack Dorsey's doing some interesting open source kind of stuff there as well. I hadn't, I'm going to check it out though. Mastodon, I think uh, there's, I've got a lot to say. Put it that way. I've got a lot to say. I might, I might see you on Mastodon during the week. Until next Friday, however, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.